0: be seated, and if you have children, you're welcome to dismiss those children to our excellent children's ministry. We're stitching together a series of principles about the generosity we see in Acts chapter 2, trying to figure it out, to be honest with you, trying to figure out why they did it, why they didn't, what, what were the reasons for their generosity, what were uh, some, some non-reasons, And we've really been emphasizing the importance that whatever they did, they did in joy. At the radical generosity we see in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, and so on throughout the scriptures, whenever that generosity is pleasing to God, it's done in joy. We've really been trying to figure out, what what, what does that look like and where does that come from? And we're going to continue that conversation today, and we're eventually going to wind up in Galatians chapter 5. If you want to turn in your Bibles, uh, we'll get there. The introduction is somewhat long, but I, I will get you there. So I've been thinking this week about uh, you know I like to I like to to wrestle with with problems and, and questions and one of the questions I've been thinking through is, why do rich Christians often break their own rules? And I want to explain what I mean by that so let's first define what I mean by rich. Now, we've been very careful not to use the government's definition of poor or, uh, or, or some other extra-biblical definition of poor. We've been very careful to say that the Bible is clear its definition of, in its definition of poor, and that is someone who's living in a subsistence level in which they do not have enough to meet the basic needs as God describes them in scriptures, food, shelter, clothing, and so forth. And we've been careful because if we let someone else define the word need, well, we know that's a slippery slope, right? All sorts of politicians are looking to get power by redefining what a need is. And and the truth is is that uh, advertisers are trying to seduce you into thinking that your wants are your needs and so forth. But as we said a few weeks ago, it doesn't get any worse than what we do to ourselves. We're the worst at this. We're the worst when it comes to redefining wants as needs. So we've been careful to follow God's word and understand What does the Bible mean when it says care for the poor? Who are the poor? Now we're going to start thinking more and more about the wealthy. And I went to the Bible again and thought, okay, what does the Bible mean? when It refers to those who are rich, those who are wealthy. Well, it isn't as easy to track the Bible's thinking on that question as it is on the question of poverty. And I think you probably just wind up with some kind of thinking if you're trying to stay true to scriptures and your definition of wealth, you probably just wind up with different tiers or gradations of the basic idea that if you have more than you need, you are on the scale of wealth. And then it's just a matter of throwing in some varies. You know, if you have a lot more than you need, you're very wealthy. <laughs> you know? like, but the whole idea seems to be that if the Bible describes poverty as those who go without, the basics they need, as God defines need, then wealth is those who have more than what they need. And I think I can support that with a variety of scriptures. Now, one of the things about, about me, and I think this might be somewhat generational, but also the fact that I'm a Midwesterner and I was raised well and so forth, is I've never assumed that wealthy people got there for dishonest, from dishonest reasons. I tend to think the best of people who have acquired possessions, assuming, as I think I understand economics, assuming that most people, there are always outliers, but most people who have accrued more than what they need have done so because God has blessed them with certain dispositions and characteristics and disciplines that have allowed them to accrue that wealth. That seems to be what the Bible teaches as well. There certainly are people who uh, attain money through unjust means, But the book of Proverbs also assumes that a lot of people that have excess income have that excess income because they've followed God's natural law, and they've done that well. And so when I ask, why do rich Christians break their own rules, I'm asking that because I think that there are some rules that people who tend to acquire significant, significant excess income follow. Uh, for one thing, the wealthy, and I'm using wealthy in a very broad category. I probably put myself at the lower end of that category, but I think I'm still in it. Um, but, but let's talk about people who we think of as wealthy. Let's just, let's just use them as a case study. For one thing, when I talk about the rich breaking their own rules, one thing I mean is, is that they seem to be, generally speaking, good at turning their money into more money. So that's one of the the gifts, the dispositions that those that seem to have more financial security seem to have, is this ability to turn the money they have into more money. Um, They're also generally good at seeing opportunities that others don't see. They're, they're, They're able to see through kind of the common knowledge and see opportunities to increase their finances in ways that aren't obvious to others. They're, they're generally good at delayed gratification. This is really comes through in the book of Proverbs. The, the people who have accrued some level of wealth tend to be good at denying themselves, and often that starts in their childhood. You can see the ways that different children relate to money and the different levels of self-discipline and delayed gratification that they can endure. Uh, people who have a lot of excess income or people who have a reasonable amount of excess income tend to be good at delaying gratification, not only perhaps maybe there, maybe not in childhood, but certainly by the time they get to college or young adulthood, patterns are starting to emerge that differentiate them from the person who will not have enough money. And those patterns tend to be related to they're good at making money with their money, they're good at seeing opportunities that others don't see, they're good at delaying gratification, They'll go to school longer, they'll work harder, they'll endure more risk to start a business and so forth. And they're also pretty good at identifying people's needs and meeting those needs while gaining something for themselves in the process, which is just like the good thing about capitalism. It's like, I see a need, I'm going to meet that need, and I'm going to be blessed by meeting that need. So those are sort of some of the rules that, that people that have significant excess income tend to operate on but when it comes to the eternal economy there's suddenly this huge disconnect when you look at the way most people with significant excess income relate to eternity so think about it this way all right the bible tells the wealthy specifically pointedly you can turn your earthly treasure into a greater treasure into a longer lasting treasure. The Bible says explicitly to the wealthy, there is a hundred percent death tax. You, know, you can't take any of it with you. And then the parable of the rich man building the barns is sort of this way of saying, and don't assume your death is that far is a long way away. You know uh, so so the Bible's implicit it's it's appealing to those with excess income saying, you could right now understand that you can't take this with you. And in fact, if you invest it in the kingdom, you're going to get a much greater return on the other side of eternity. Now, of course, this thinking isn't obvious to most people. But like I said, people that have excess income, they usually don't get that because they're bad people. They usually get that because they're good at seeing opportunities that others don't see. And of course, like if you decided to be radically generous in the way that Acts 2 describes... And give away a big chunk of what you count now as your security for the future and so forth. If you decided to do that, you would have to delay a lot of gratification in this life, uh, and, and and hope that that in the future in the in the kingdom you'll be rewarded. But again, people with a lot of excess income tend to be good at delayed gratification, and of course, like. The whole idea of, well, what does it mean to, to be radically generous? And what does it mean to invest your money in eternity? Well, it really means this. There are people in the world, 8 billion of them, and a bunch of them are called by Jesus to become followers of Christ when they hear the gospel. So investing in meeting a need is simply, well, I'm just going to put my money toward the proclamation of the gospel in one way or another. And by meeting their needs, I'm storing up treasures for myself in eternity. And so what's strange is, is that it's almost like you could hear Jesus sitting down with wealthy Christians, however you want to define that, and I would encourage you not to define it as someone else, and not you, because I think we all have excess income. But you can almost imagine Jesus sitting down with you and having one of those kind, older brother, ye of little faith talks, where he's like, listen, I gave you the ability to turn some money into more money. Like, that's for me, that skill. I gave you the ability to see opportunities that others don't see. I gave you the ability to, to, to endure delayed gratification. I gave you the ability to identify other people's needs and meet them while also enriching yourself. And these are all evident. These, these, these abilities that I've given you are all evident by the fact that you have excess income. You're, you're doing well and good for you. But then you can imagine Jesus saying, but then I appeal to those very same instincts in encouraging you to be generous in the kingdom and encouraging you to invest in eternity. I appeal to those very same instincts in encouraging you to delay gratification in this world for an eternal reward. I appeal to the very same instincts that you use to start your business, to make some of the money you've made by seeing others' needs as an opportunity for your investment. I appeal to that because the world's full of people who need Jesus. And I appeal to all of the very same gifts, abilities, disciplines, dispositions that I've given you to make earthly money. I spoke to you in the language of investment and return. I appeal to that. For instance, 1 Timothy 6, 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That's that's language that would appeal to someone who is naturally good with acquiring excess income. It's the language of investment. It's the, it's the language of delayed gratification. It's the language of meeting other people's needs. So you can almost imagine this is a, a strange disconnect. It's like as soon as these people who are really good at these things have to look past this life and apply the same principles they're using now to enrich themselves to enrich themselves in eternity there's like this massive drop off it's like what, what why do rich christians break their own rules that's the problem i've been working through and i think galatians 5:13 is a good text to help us see what's going on here galatians 5:13 For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For, those, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. As Craig helpfully alluded to in his testimony earlier, Paul is speaking to a group of Christians who are adjusting to the freedom they have in Christ. And you see one or two kind of trajectories unfold. So this is what happens when freedom enters into someone's life. You get one or two reactions. Some of the Galatians are so institutionalized by the law that they're sort of like that ex-con who can't get used to all the freedom and wants to go back to the confinement and the rules. And so there's this one instinct that's sort of like looking back to the law with fondness and remembering the chains in Egypt as fondness and saying, I remember when life was ordered. And I didn't have to wonder what I was going to have for lunch because it was already prepared for me. I mean, yeah, it was gruel, but but I I, I don't really like all of this freedom. I don't feel comfortable with it. So one response to the freedom that comes through the gospel is sort of like, Let me just, could you just give me some more rules, please? And then another response to the freedom is, you know, the 18-year-old kid who goes away to college and dabbles in like every brand of hedonism because it's the first time they've been out from under their parents' eye, right? Like, there's two different ways that we respond to freedom. We respond to freedom by going back to the law, or we respond to freedom by indulging in, you know, sort of hedonistic pleasures. And then which one is Paul talking about when he refers to uh, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh? Well, he's referring to both of them. Because wanting to go back to the law is no less carnal and fleshy than uh, than dabbling in, in hedonism. They're, they're both the same thing. They're both a rejection of freedom. So we have this problem. We don't do that well with freedom. Now, that's interesting because that's really what we're talking about when we're talking about excess income. See, all of these things in God's word, all of these principles are just so fractal. They unfold and unfold and unfold so that if you could figure out why you struggle with freedom of Christ, you can figure out why you struggle with free time. And, and, and freedom of excess income. And freedom of out from under your parents' authority. Like, it's all the same stuff. It's all the same principles. And so that's what they're at. They're, they're just struggling with, with freedom. And their reaction to the freedom is to go back to giving an opportunity to the flesh. So I'm going to talk about free money. But you could also apply this to free time. Which is a significant struggle if you've not had it before and suddenly a, a lot of it's dumped on you. You tend not to do good things with it. Let's, we could talk about freedom of speech. You know where the freedom of the spe- where your a test of freedom of speech comes in most, most seriously? You have a, a small number of relationships in your life where you basically are free to say whatever you want. So what do you do with that freedom? Usually not good stuff. Often not good stuff. What do we do with the freedom that we get from having the Internet? What do we do do with the freedom of, of having our parents' trust? So excess income is just a form of freedom, and the basic patterns that are problems for us when we encounter freedom are the same. We tend to use freedom of one stripe or another as an opportunity for the flesh. And I want to remind you and emphasize that the first thing you might think of when you hear of the flesh is probably something sexual or at least carnal but a lot of fleshy things in scripture appear outwardly to be quite shrewd and moral and buttoned down i mean take for instance one of the first instances in god's word where a bunch of people do something in the flesh they built the tower of babel and it wasn't it wasn't a pleasure palace out by the airport you know it was it was a, it was a it was a skyscraper in Soho, like it, it was it was buttoned down, it was ordered, it was for security and identity, right? And it was all the flesh. So the flesh isn't only licentiousness. So why do wealthy Christians break their own rules? why Why do they operate under these rules pretty well in earthly concerns? But then when they're invited to partake of the one true economy, the one eternal economy, and invited to really just invest as much as they could dream of into the eternal treasuries, why do they suddenly start acting like everybody else? Why do they break those rules? Well, because that's what we do with our freedom. When we have freedom, we indulge the flesh. And for some of us, the flesh looks like spending too much at fast food or having way too many internet subscriptions that we don't even know what are for. And some of us indulging the flesh looks like saving more than what God would want you to. Again, that's entirely a conscience issue. And let's be clear about this. God's not trying to crowbar any dollars out of anybody right now. As I said last week, he's far more concerned about your desires than he is about your donations. But it just seems strange that this rules, these rules that people follow and they do quite well with them, they, they see that they work. It's like eternity comes along and suddenly they, they don't apply anymore. You know, Mark ten twenty-nine. It's an incredible promise. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there's no one... Who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or fathers or children or lands for my sake or for the gospel. Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. So that's an incredible investment opportunity. That's a prospectus that Jesus is sliding across the desk, and he's saying, here's the deal. If you leave houses and lands for my sake, or for the sake of the gospel, I can promise you, what was it, hundredfold? A hundredfold return on your investment, both in this life and in the life to come. Now, someone who's naturally financially shrewd, you would think, would read that and say, I'm in. I believe God's word. I believe Jesus. He wouldn't tell me this if it weren't true. So where do I sign? But there's this big disconnect. And that disconnect is because of the flesh. So Galatians 5 tells us that we'll be tempted to use our freedoms as an opportunity for the flesh. And truth be told... This is more father-pastor-human speaking right now. Truth be told, most of us, our first few times around the track, when we get a new freedom, we don't do very well with it. Most of us use our freedom for the flesh, just as Galatians 5 anticipates. But the great thing about this passage is, is that you have other desires. You actually want better things for yourself and for your money and for this life and for the next. Look at it again with me. Verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. I love verse 17. You have better desires. If you're in Christ, you have better desires. And let's be patient and understanding, even though we're talking about our own sin, let's, let's understand that we are but dust, that we are creatures, that we're fallen creatures at that. And that, yeah, maybe the first time you encounter freedom from your parents' watchful eye, you crash the plane. Maybe the first generation of Christian men to encounter freedom on the internet, get chewed up and spit out. Maybe you've got far more discretionary income than you realized, And certainly that you ever anticipated you would have. And maybe your first few times around the track, maybe this freedom has mostly been about gratifying the flesh. Uh, Years ago at another church, I was talking to all these young guys. They were they were blue-collar guys. They weren't going to be going to college. And I would really, I'd really pump up the trades and be like, you know, you'd be a good welder. You should consider this. You should consider that. And I'm really talking to these guys and like, get out there and get a job. And they're all youngish, 16, 17. And I remember one kid, he went out and got his job. And I, I told him, hey, man, I'm so proud of you. You went out and got a job. Good job. Gave him a high five. A little dude, little guy uh little skinny guy and uh and and two weeks later he says Pastor Chris it's like what's up he's like I got my first paycheck and I got this and he points to a belt buckle <laughs> and and on that belt belt buckle is a Batman logo <laughs> a yellow and black Batman logo and then he says and this and he points up to his head and on his head is a tweed fedora. So this young man, his first experience with financial freedom, the desires of his heart were enabled. He could do whatever he desired with the money he had, and the desires of his heart led toward the purchase of a Batman belt buckle and a tweed fedora. Guys, I... A few weeks ago, we talked about what a forensic accountant would say if he looked through your finances about what you desire. You know, if he combed through your finances, what would he say you desire? Well, I don't know if it would be that much better, honestly, for some of us than a long series of Batman belt buckles. It's just, it, 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 it's not really much to be proud of, perhaps. The truth is, is that. When we encounter freedom, we don't always do very well with it to begin with. But the great thing about Galatians 5, and Romans 7 is just a, 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 another version of Galatians 5. The great thing about these passages is that you don't have to stay there, you could have, you do have greater desires. Last week we said that your heart is like a room full of radios, that you're just always sorting through competing desires. And all those desires are competing for your moments and your money and your energy and your affections and so forth. And it's like you have to go through this room full of radios and figure out which ones are good and which ones aren't. And the weird thing is, is that a lot of the desires that aren't the best are the loudest. And a lot of the desires that are the best are the quietest. And so you've got this, you've got work to do. And of course, because we're fallen, and of course, because of indwelling sin, and of course, because of the flesh, we're going to listen to the wrong tunes. And the more freedom we have, honestly, the more likely we are have to have, have made a mess out of it. And I believe, by the way, as an aside, that is why, that is why you see so many warnings in the scriptures to the wealthy. It's because the more freedom you have, the bigger mess you can make. We do that. So would you be willing to admit, you don't have to like raise your hand or anything, but would you be willing to admit that as of right now in your life, whether you're 55 or 25, as of right now in your life, you are not happy with the way you've used the various freedoms you've been given. That you wish you had Used those freedoms to greater effect for eternal good. I can admit that. And it hurts. Another intellectual problem I was working on this week was, I was trying to figure out what makes a tragedy a tragedy. And you know what I came up with, finally? Like What, what is it about Romeo and Juliet when I was in seventh grade and read it that really offended me? You know, like it was sad to me. It really, I was like, people write stories like this? Fortunately, a lot of people write their own stories in similar ways. What makes a tragedy a tragedy? What are the basic rules of tragedy? Here's what I figured out. You need a character that you have some natural sympathy for, who you see potential in, and then you need to watch over a series of chapters that person waste away all their potential and wind up in a heap of ruin. That's what a tragedy is. Wasted potential. Maybe God's helping you to see right now the enormous amount of freedom in a variety of areas of your life you've had. And also to see that at best, your use of those freedoms has been mixed there's a proper amount of regret or sobriety to say, you know, I think I could have been more generous or with my time or my money. Or I think I could have been. The thing is is that you don't have to be afraid of stepping into that moment because God never leaves a human being there. A broken and contrite spirit, he will by no means cast out. So you don't have to be afraid of stepping onto the existential spotlight all alone in the blackness and saying, "You know, I think I might have wasted big pieces of my life." You don't have to be afraid of that because something glorious has happened through Jesus, and it isn't it isn't just, I say just very carefully, a get out of hell free pass. Something wonderful has happened and it's reflected in this passage. And that is, God is actually optimistic for you. God is optimistic that you will not waste your life. That you may have had some rough rounds around the track with the freedom that you've been given. It hasn't gone well so far. But there's something going on in this text that's just stunning. And that starts with this idea. Number one, you actually have a choice. That's pretty cool. The text says that you have desires that are of the flesh and you have desires that are of the spirit. And that makes you different than anyone else who isn't in Christ. Because those who are in Christ are dead in their sins and trespasses, and they have one option. Flesh, flesh, flesh. But you have, if you're in Christ, a choice. Number two, this is where it gets really good. You have the desires of Christ embedded in your heart. Look at, look at the passage again, verse 16. So he's talking about you. He says, he ends in verse 17, you do not do the things you want to do. We'll talk about that in a moment. But he's talking about you. And he says that you have desires of the flesh and desires of the Spirit. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. For instance, one of the greatest blessings of new life in Christ is that the Holy Spirit has imported the desires of Jesus, the reasons he did what he did, his motivations, his affections, his loves, into your heart. That's what it means when it says the desires of the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit, if you want to know what that is, that's the desires of Jesus. That's the motivations and affections of Jesus. There's a moment where Paul actually says to to some of his people, I have the affections of Christ for you. And friends, if you're in Christ, embedded in your heart, given to you as a gift, is... The full treasury of all of Jesus's emotions, motivations, desires, appetites. <laughs> it's incredible. Jesus was a desire-rich person. is a desire-rich person. He wasn't a deterministic slave. He had true freedom. He literally could do whatever he wanted. He chose to live a life of relative poverty. I think that's because he was playing by the rules of wealth, um, but literally had all the money, right? And anything was just a thought away. So Jesus wasn't a deterministic entity that was, that was moving through life on a, on a rail. He had more choice than we have, more freedom than we have. And yet he did not use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But that wasn't because he didn't have desires. Jesus wasn't a stoic. He wasn't indifferent to his desires. He isn't teaching you that the way to happiness is to ignore what you desire. He didn't accomplish all he accomplished because he ignored his desires. He simply was filled with the best desires. And the outcome of his life is a, is, is a byproduct or a manifestation of all the desires that he was filled with. All the best ones. All the uncorrupted ones. Jesus wasn't free from competing desires. Obviously, there's the example in Gethsemane. You know, at first reading, you get kind of a stoic vibe from that passage. Jesus says, you know, nevertheless, not my will. He prays three times, if there's any way for the cup to pass, let it, let it pass. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. What's happening there isn't that Jesus is saying, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want my desires to be relevant. He's saying, no, what I really desire over the desire not to die on a cross, over the desire not to be separated uh, from you, is the desire for you to work freely through me. So Gethsemane is just a wrestling, a sorting out, a discerning of desires. Jesus is in his room full of radios and he's Turning up the tune he's choosing to dance to, and the dance he's choosing to the song he's choosing to dance to is the will of the Father for him to be crushed. So, what's happening in these moments when we see Jesus making choices is the same thing that was, must happen with us. He just wins every time because he has all the good desires. You know, the Arby's we have the meats like Jesus has the desires. Like he has, he has the desires, all the ones you want. You know, in Hebrews twelve, there's this there's this clear sorting out of desires. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let, let us let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set for the joy that was set before him, that's a choice. It's choosing. This is what I want. I'm I'm pursuing the joy, and therefore I will endure the cross. I will despise the shame, and I will look to be seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is seeking reward. There's this moment in John 4 after he has the conversation with the the woman at the well. And the disciples are kind of in Three Stooges mode at that moment. And uh, they find him after he's done all of this, and they feel bad because he hasn't eaten all day. And Jesus says, well, I have other food that you know not of. My food is to do the will of the Father. What that means is is that Jesus loved food. Most of his post-resurrection encounters involve food. The Pharisees accused him of being a glutton at one moment. But what it means is that Jesus is able to perfectly sort through all of the desires and come up with the right one, the best one. And to really want it so much that for him, fulfilling that desire is like eating. It's like feeling satisfied. It's like feeling good. So Jesus is full of desires. And the glorious thing is, is is that when you are in Christ, you're not just accounted as righteous in a legal or positional way, though that itself is glorious, but you are imputed with Jesus's righteousness. And you, that means that means you're given his desires and they're in you right now. And the trick is, is that when you got a new freedom, you're just not really good at like sorting through all the songs playing in that room for radios. And so the first thing you naturally do is you listen to the loud ones, and the loud ones are your flesh, and they have to do with how quickly you get the reward or how much pleasure you get out of the reward, and so on. You're just not good at listening to the spiritual songs, but God is optimistic for you because He has placed. The victorious desires of Jesus in your heart. They're there. But here's another level of of glory with this those desires of Jesus are so imprinted into my soul that they are now more me than the desires of my flesh. That's incredible. But it comes through in both passages. It comes through in both passages that the desires of Jesus, the desires of the Spirit, are more me than the desires of my flesh. Now, that doesn't make any actual sense unless we take it by faith. Because, I mean, the desires of the flesh, that's, that's really me, right? And, and the desires of, of Jesus, that's not really me. But God's work of redemption and regeneration is so complete he not only looks at you as positionally righteous, he looks at you as motivationally righteous. This is huge. He accounts you as motivationally righteous. What do I mean by that? Well, look at the end of the, the passage we've been looking at, Galatians 5, verse 17. What does it say? It says, you know, that the desires of the, 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 the flesh are against the spirit, the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing what you want to do. Now, what does that mean? Because I think what it means is that God considers you motivationally righteous. And it means that, that your, the deepest you is the desire to do the Jesus stuff. And that the desire to waste your life on Batman belt buckles is not the deepest you. So I think what that verse is saying is is that that the desires of the flesh are contrary to the desires of the Spirit, and it's keeping you from doing what you want to do. And I think there's this massively charitable assumption through the Holy Spirit in Paul's writing that what you want to do is not waste your freedom on your flesh. That that's the deepest you. Is that right? Well, like I said, Romans 7 is a companion passage, and it comes through loud and clear that that's exactly what this passage is saying in Romans 7. Let me read some of that to you, Romans seven fifteen: For I do not understand my own actions. This is the whole concept of competing desires again. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. For now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I I do what I do not want, it is no longer I, but sin that dwells in me. This is just incredible. Your redemption in Jesus is so complete that the thing that is most natural to you, which is your sin nature, is no longer you. And the thing that is most unnatural to you, which is the righteousness of Jesus, is now more you than your flesh, than your sin. Now, that's revolutionary. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, for for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, we tend to think of that in a legal sense, that, you know, we're standing before God in Jesus, and he considers us righteous. But the righteousness that we're given through Jesus is way deeper than just a legal representational righteousness. It's way bigger than that. So that's what Paul has in mind, for instance, in Philippians 2. When he's encouraging people to not give into to the flesh, he's encouraging them to love one another. And how does he do that? How does he tell them, like, listen, I want you to love people well. I want you to not consider yourself better than others. I want you to look out for other people's interests and not only your own. He says this. He introduces it this way. Have this mind among yourselves that is yours in Christ Jesus. The desire to love, the desire to be heroic with your finances, the desire to be generous in a way that defies human reason and embraces kingdom promises, that's the desire that Jesus had, and it's yours now if you're his. And that's going to win a lot more than you think it is. If the father really believes this, if he really sees it this way, then this totally rewrites the story of what the father sees when he watches you struggle and fail. What he sees is someone who has the very desires of Christ Who is also burdened with the desires of the flesh, who, because of that struggle, is kept from doing what they want to do. You want to be like Jesus. That's what the deepest you, if you're in Christ, desires. You want to obey the Father. That's what the deepest you, if you're in Christ, desires. You want to live for another country. That's what the deepest you desires if you're in Christ. The Father really believes that. And that's how total and complete your salvation is. And that's what Peter means when he says that you've become partakers of the divine nature. You're filled with the desires of Christ, the desires of the Spirit. Now, this, of course, is enormously uh, important for how we relate to one another. Because our relationship with others is going to involve us seeing them fail and fail and fail. And the perspective we take on that, whether we say, well, the truest you is a failure. The truest you is dark and sinful and selfish. Or we say the truest you longs to manifest the life of Christ in your life. And you're battling with the flesh and you're losing so that you're kept from doing what you do not want to do. So the fact that you have used some freedom, perhaps financial freedom, to gratify the desires of the flesh, that's not the truest you. If you're in Christ, there's something much bigger and braver and bolder in you. The psychological community talks a lot about the dangers of repression, And repression is the idea of denying your deepest desires. It's like, well, if you're not in Christ, I think that's just a good idea. But the thing they don't understand is that for the Christian, the Christian's another kind of human entirely. And for the Christian, walking in the flesh is repressing who they really are. Because who they really are is in the spirit. So crucifying the desires of the flesh and embracing the desires of the Spirit is, for the Christian, the definition of self-actualization. It's really you coming into who you are. And that means, by the way, that the times you do use the freedom that you've been given for the flesh, you're doing what Peter refers to as engaging in sinful desires which wage war against your soul. You're actually self-harming. All of that stuff you do, much of it is is, is aimed at security and comfort and convenience. All the waste that we put our our excess income in that's aimed for security, it's actually destabilizing your identity. It's destabilizing you. It's repressing you. It's making you less you. Because who you really are, and thank God God sees it this way, is your person full of the desires of Jesus who will express those desires in unique ways according to your unique person and circumstance. And that's beautiful. So let's wrap this up. Galatians 5, 13 through 17, obviously incredibly profound theologically, but it's all quite practical as well. question becomes, okay, so don't use my freedom for the flesh, get it? Let the desires of Jesus rise to the surface. Let them be the loudest songs in my heart. Get it? How do you do that? What does that look like? Well, it's actually spelled out in the passage. Uh, Verse 13, for you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. How do you pivot from using the freedoms you have to gratify the flesh, and wasting them and de-actualizing yourself? How do you pivot from that to being this Jesus-desire-manifesting creature of generosity? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. That's the practical explanation for how you shift as you're struggling with any freedom. The practical explanation, whether that's a theological freedom, liberty in Christ, or practical freedom like the freedom of financial excess or the freedom of free time or the freedom of trust from other people, what do you do with that freedom? How do you practically shift from gratifying the flesh Toward walking in the Spirit, practically. Well, you use those freedoms to love your neighbor. Now, if you see your neighbor as an opportunity for you to be who you really most deeply are, and that is a carrier of the very desires, motivations, and loves of Jesus, and that dramatically reframes a lot of things we think about our neighbors. Here's the deal. If you're not careful, it becomes fairly quickly that you will think of of your neighbor as more of an obligation than an opportunity. At the best, at the best, that's considering you even think about your neighbors, which some of us would do well just to start there. But at best... You will think of your neighbor as an obligation when this verse, this section of Scripture is telling you, though, your neighbor's an opportunity. Your neighbor's an opportunity for you not to waste your freedom in the flesh. Your neighbor's an opportunity for you to learn to walk in the Spirit and to let the desires of Jesus play loudly in your life. If you believe that, then you're going to avoid one of the errors that uh, the lawyer in Luke 10 commits when. Jesus quotes this uh, again. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the lawyer seeking to justify himself says, well, who is my neighbor? And the question that he's asking there is really he's trying to shrink his obligation. Like, let me limit who my neighbor is, so therefore I'm less obliged to love fewer people. I'm I'm obliged to love fewer people. And Jesus, of course, expands the definition, (laughs) quite knowing, knowing what this guy was doing, he expands the definition to include, you know, a grody Samaritan, you know, like the icky guy, you know, it's like, well, that guy's your neighbor. He did the exact opposite of what the guy was going for. But here's the deal. If your neighbor is your obligation, you're going to shrink the number of people you count your neighbor. If your neighbor is an opportunity, you're going to expand it. And the whole thrust of the gospel is, is that Jesus is saying that the whole world is our neighbor. Because they're all an opportunity for the glory of Jesus to be shown, to be, to, to, to be presented if, if your neighbor is an obligation, limit the number of neighbors you think of as your neighbors. If your neighbor's an opportunity, Pakistan, neighbor. Right? Are they an obligation or are they an opportunity? That will give you a really good sense of whether you're walking in the flesh or the spirit. Let me pray for us. Lord, I'm so thankful for the incalculable grace of your gospel. It is, it is thrilling to think that you are kind in your consideration of us, even when we fail. And that you are more mindful of the desires of Jesus within us than we are. And that you would count those desires as a part of our character. A so gracious, God. So gracious, so much more than we deserve. Lord, as we partake of the Lord's table today, would you let that thought stir our hearts? Lord, if there's someone here who doesn't, it isn't yours. They may not even know that right now, but, but maybe in your Holy Spirit, you could help them to see Those desires of Jesus aren't just quiet. They're just not there. That you would help them, God, just in a real simple, non-sophisticated, urgent, broken plea. Just say, I want, I think my life would be so much better if I had the desires of Jesus inside my heart. I think I would be who I was supposed to be if I had that. And you would give them the faith to call upon the one who gave himself for us. Bless our time of communion in Jesus' name.